0: It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Jeffrey Ostler, who is Beekman Professor of Northwest and Pacific History at the University of Oregon. He teaches courses on U.S. history and American Indian history, and he is the author of an important new book called Surviving Genocide, Native Nations and the United States, from the American Revolution to Bleeding Kansas. Jeff Ostler, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Radio. Oh, thanks very much, David. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for writing this book. I learned a great deal. As you know, it's common to assert that most of the deaths of Native Americans post Columbus were accidental effects of European diseases. What is the role of disease in this history?
1: Well, uh, I'm drawing on um, a lot of recent scholarship uh, on that question in the book, Uh, and what that recent scholarship has showed us is, uh, that, you know, there were some cases of smallpox epidemics that occurred right at the moment of initial contact between, um, American Indians and Europeans. But, um, that's not the real story. The real story is the ways in which, um, conditions created by European colonization Um, promoted the spread of disease, uh, and also made uh, Native people vulnerable uh, to disease. Uh, These conditions sometimes involved um, the enslavement of Native people. It sometimes involved warfare. Uh, It sometimes involved uh, removals that, you know, resulted in um, poverty and immiseration. So those are really the conditions that people are emphasizing now for for the spread of disease.
0: In other words, if you make people homeless and burn their crops and they're weak and they're cold and they're hungry, yeah. disease hits them harder.
1: Yeah, you know, it it really, uh, I think, can be seen. I mean, at that level, it's kind of, um, you know, maybe not uh, quite the best way to put it, but it's a public health issue, you know. I mean people are are in poverty um they're immiserated. as you say you've uh, made them homeless and uprooted them they're not they can't plant crops and yeah they're they're much more vulnerable uh to a whole host of diseases yeah you know?
0: so so disease is uh is a factor in combination with other factors in in much of the of the death
1: no, I think that that's absolutely right
0: um it it it's also very interesting i found in in your book that you write from the 1780s up to the 1830s native american populations were actually increasing as a whole in the in the eastern us while people in favor of of ethnic cleansing were pretending that they were dying out and needed to be rescued and driven west for their own good for their own survival this this seems upside down to what many people uh, imagine happened.
1: Yeah, it is upside down, and in fact, it was uh, something that, um, it was a finding in my research that surprised me, um, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I was under the impression, um, not because any there was any clear scholarship on this, but just the general impression, I think, is that um, the population of Native Americans was declining in the eastern part of the United States, as you say, from say 1780s uh, up until 1830, uh, the time of the Indian Removal Act? Um, and in fact, empirically, that's not true. Uh, you know, I was able to add up a lot of different numbers, and I'm quite convinced that the populations uh, were increasing, despite the fact that Native people were. Um, periodically, um, undergoing major assaults related to U.S. expansion. They still had some land in the east and they had made economic adjustments and so on. Um, and so, right, the policy of Indian removal was justified, uh, on quote, humanitarian grounds as necessary to, you know, quote, save Indians who were going to disappear who are already disappearing, and you had to move them into the West to save them. And so one of the striking things to me, I, I mean, the policy of removal I don't think would have been justified anyway, but even more so because it's based on a complete falsehood, you know, I think uh, it, it helps expose uh, the policy in that way.
0: So this was sort of a, either a deception or a wishful thinking sort of self-deception for people to be declaring that the that the Native Americans are dying out and then to take uh, take steps to, to force them out and, and
1: cause them right, to die right. out. No, I think that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, it's always hard to tell exactly what historical actors who are saying ideological things really believe in their heart of hearts, right? Sure. I mean, we know that today. We have to think about that, I suppose. Um, so is it self-deception or is it just intentional lying? Is sometimes hard to tell. Um, that aside, it's, it's pretty clear that um, policymakers were working very hard to construct quite elaborate rationales, you know, to make it seem that what they were doing was okay.
0: And so the, the native nations in the in the eastern part of the US really were surviving genocide at that point. Uh, if if the activities that were underway constitute genocide, they were surviving it.
1: Right, they had been, you know, different communities uh, at different times between the 1770s, let's say, with the Revolutionary War and then the War of 1812, there had been, you know, massive violence and disruption of m- many of those nations, the Cherokees, um, a lot of the nations in the Ohio Valley, Shawnees, Miamis, um, and then also, you know, the Haudenosaunee's, the Six Nations uh, of New York at different times had been really hit hard by U.S. military forces. Uh, And so I really think that, you know, um, they were having through all of that to um, survive genocidal processes, um, but they were doing so, you know, and those processes, those genocidal acts were, were periodic. They weren't absolutely sustained all the time and so there was some space for people to rebuild at different points along the way.
0: People tend to think of the American Revolution as a war against uh, the British, fought by the American colonists, or in some cases they're aware of the, the major role played by the French, but but this was also a war against Native Americans and a war of, of territorial expansion, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, very much so, and I think the two were deeply intertwined. And I think, you know, historians have a better awareness of this. Uh, it's not like, you know, my views on this are, are brand new or something. I'm drawing on the work of a lot of good historians. Um, you know, Alan Taylor, for example, there, you know, at the University of Virginia. Um, but I think that we have a better sense of how the American Revolution was Partly uh, inspired by a desire by the colonists to get free of the British Empire, because the British Empire was, to some extent, restricting the colonists' ability to settle on native lands and speculate in native lands. And so the War for Independence is partly a war against the British, but it's also a war against Indians, you know. they're often allied, the British and Indians, but I think you know the it's not just that the colonists are fighting Indians because Indians are on the British side. they're fighting Indians because Indians are trying to block uh the colonists from invading their lands,
0: and perhaps they're fighting the British in part because the British are blocking the that invasion of the land
1: exactly exactly uh so I think the two go hand in hand you know uh, in in what you know at America's founding and and what it wants in you know um, that moment of independence.
0: I, I suspect uh, a lot of people uh, don't remember that much about the Northwest Ordinance, uh, a law that they probably heard about in history class in, in elementary school, uh, but that as you, you write in the book uh, used language like just and lawful war, uh, but then you, right. you look a little deeper into what was actually meant by just and lawful war. Can you what, what was this law and what was the, the meaning of these words?
1: Well, uh, what I one of the things I started thinking about was um, what did it mean when the United States, under the Northwest Ordinance, said, you know, we can pursue, at least under some conditions, just and lawful war against the Indians, is how it reads. And what did that really mean? Uh, you know, the United States is saying it may fight just and lawful wars. Uh, what do they actually look like in practice? And the conclusion I came to, kind of watching U.S. military operations, um, which were intended to subdue or subjugate um, Native resistance to what I think of as really an invasion of their territory, uh, what those U.S. military operations did was, you know, they attempted uh, to surprise um, villages, towns, uh, native towns and villages um, that included, you know, men of fighting age, certainly, but also included non-combatants, you know, women, children, old men, you know, the infirm and so on. And those military operations, um, that's what they wanted to do was to surprise those villages and kill large numbers of people. You know, they might have taken some captives, uh, to hold us hostage uh, for further negotiations and things like that. But it was going to be indiscriminate violence. And I think, you know, a, a type of violence that corresponds to our modern sense of genocide, wholesale um, slaughter, massacre, if you will. Um, and when you watch those military operations, that's what they intend to do. Now, they don't always succeed, and that's because... Um, you know, Native people, they're on their own territory, Uh, they can sometimes ambush uh, U.S. military forces. uh, And they can then, uh, if they can't ambush them, they uh, can evade them. And if they see them coming into their towns, uh, you know, they have scouts, they see them coming, they want to save their women and children, and they often will evacuate their towns. Um, That then means the U.S. Army will, burn them to the ground and desecrate graves and things like that. But you know, it's better than seeing, you know, uh three or four hundred um non combatants be slaughtered, which is which is what would have happened if they hadn't, you know, been able to um see uh what was happening and evacuate. But we do see in some cases when US military forces do reach these towns um, we do see what they intend to do. If they can surprise them, you know, they will engage in indiscriminate slaughter. And so, um, that's what I see as just and lawful war, uh, in practice does become genocidal war. And it's a, you know, a different kind of war, uh, than the United States, uh, would have waged against the British during the War of Independence, or for that matter, a different kind of war. Uh, you know, then the North uh, was willing to wage uh, against the South. You know, when Sherman marched to the sea um, in the late stages of the Civil War, he didn't try to surprise towns of Georgia Georgians and kill them all. You know, right? Um, there was massive economic destruction, but, but not, you know, uh, genocide.
0: In the book, you quote the uh, Secretary of of War Henry Knox as as explaining that a uh, uh, just and lawful war meant uh, peaceful settlement if they agreed everything we want; otherwise, uh, extirpation. I think was the word he used. Yeah. It's hard to imagine That's what term a, he used. What what would an unjust and unlawful war have been? I can't imagine.
1: Well, I think it is an unjust war. Ultimately, the United States is declaring it to be just, uh, and they're doing so uh, on the basis of uh, international law, particularly uh, based on the works of the Swiss uh, jurist, uh, Emmerich de Vittel, uh, who, you know, had argued um, that um, war against savage people—I mean, this is, in my view, a racist, um, you know, justification war against savage people who don't cultivate the lands and refuse to give them over, um, to quote, civilized people, um, you know, such war, uh, and he says a war of extermination is, is just under European international law. Um, I don't think it seems just to us, um, you know, and and many of the listeners, but, uh, but that's what the United States is, um, clearing.
0: these these wars uh, i don 't think this is touched on in uh, in the book, and i don 't know what you think, but I want to ask the, these wars against the native nations of uh, of this continent went on for so many years that when I hear people say that the the war on Afghanistan is the longest u s war ever, mm. or other people say the war on Vietnam is actually de- you know depending where you where you start and stop it yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it strikes me as as misleading uh, am i am I wrong there?
1: Uh, well, it certainly makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, uh, people, you know, native scholars, non-native scholars who really think about the history of this, um, in North America, uh, you know, really do think of the several centuries long war, uh, taking different forms, including violence, but also other forms of aggression against Native communities um, that continues to this day, you know. Um, so in that sense, we've got a several centuries-long war. Um, and then phases of it, uh, just in more conventional terms of war, are quite long. People have written books, uh, you know, with titles uh, referring to a sixty-six zero years war uh, for the Ohio Valley, you know, that, Uh, Starts in the 1850s um, and concludes in the 18 teens, uh, and you know that's an on and off war. So, uh, you know that's uh, that's a fair bit longer, right? uh, And you know the examples that you mentioned. Just right there. Uh,
0: yes, indeed. Um, we're, we're speaking with Jeff Ostler, and the book is called "Surviving Genocide: Native Nations and the United States from the American Revolution to Bleeding Kansas." I, I, there. This is a book that that names names and there are a lot of people in it and i want to ask about one in particular because there's a uh, a big monumental statue uh of this man uh at the at the university of virginia near where i live uh and that's george rogers clark uh who who was he and what did he do to native americans
1: well you know he's uh probably the uh least for most americans i suppose the less famous of two Clark brothers, Uh, you know, his brother William Clark, uh, Lewis and Clark, I Mm -hmm. suppose is more famous, certainly out here in Oregon.
0: There's a a statue of him right down the street from his brother. Yeah,
1: so (laughs) um, George Rogers Clark is his older brother and uh, uh, is a Virginian um, and uh, played an important role in uh, some of the events that I talk about early in the book, uh particularly during the Revolutionary War and shortly after, um, I believe the statue that you mentioned uh labels him on uh this you know the uh pedestal as uh, conqueror of the Northwest and he's certainly been celebrated in those terms uh, for a long time uh you know the uh, state of Virginia uh during the Revolutionary War um, dispatched him twice, uh, uh, out into the West, uh, partly, um, to subjugate, uh, native people in, you know, places like Ohio, uh, who were resisting, uh, the expansion of, of, you know, um, by Virginia settlers and other settlers, um, to subjugate those people and partly to, um, expand uh, claims to buy the colony or now state of Virginia um, to Western lands for the future. Uh, the states were all competing with one another uh, for Western lands. So uh, Clark was involved in two uh, uh, major military expeditions, um, you know, that had mixed results, but uh, certainly in terms of what I was talking about a moment ago, of uh, genocidal violence, um, he certainly talked uh, a great deal to Indians and threatened them a great deal with genocidal violence, and um, you know was involved, uh, led uh, led a military a militia force uh, against a Shawnee town um, called Piqua in um, Western Ohio um, that slaughtered forty people, some of whom would have been noncombatants. combatants. So you know 40 people doesn't sound like a huge amount but when we're talking about a town of 2 300 people maybe um you know we're talking about uh 20% or something like that um so you know a significant massacre
0: so this was a man who you, you quote as saying he wouldn't leave a man, woman, or child of them alive if he could get his hands on them. He threatened to to feed their women and children to dogs, he, yeah. and he engaged yeah. in these practices. Uh, yeah, well. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, and we have this this giant monument of him, Conqueror of the Northwest, with three soldiers behind him with guns and gunpowder, and he's reaching back for a gun. And a couple of Native American men and a woman holding an infant in front of him, uh, and when this was dedicated back in the 1920s, it was celebrated as rightly and and gloriously causing this woman to plead for the life of of her infant uh, it, it seems a, a a shameless you know explicit celebration of genocide, uh, and so some of us are proposing we take that monument and put it in a history museum or put it in context with other monuments that tell the story about it and don't yeah. just leave it there in the, in this central space uh as if it's how we think today and do you know what the most common response to that proposal is that
1: we... Well, I don't, but I'm going to guess okay. that it's you're, you'll be destroying history. You
0: got it. Erasing history is the most yeah, un- right. common phrase, and I, I, you're yeah. a historian. I'm not. What do you or is moving a monument out of a central square to a history museum and replacing it with something we actually agree with today is, is that erasing history?
1: Well, I mean, it's very interesting that you would bring this up. Um, you know, as you mentioned I'm at the University of Oregon, and um, our Native students uh, and uh, some faculty here, and uh, I also have some uh, non-Native graduate students who are working on this. We have a statue that was dedicated right about the same time, the end of World War I, um, to a generic figure, the pioneer, Uh, but he's much in the vein of of, um, Clark uh, as a Heroic Conqueror, um, and, you know, it's very clear that, um, the statue, um, has an intention to celebrate violence against Native people of this area. Um, and so we're, uh, you know, people here are proposing precisely the same thing you're proposing, is to remove the statue and put it, uh, into a museum. Um, you know, the idea that that erases history, uh you know, strikes me as, as a red herring. I mean, we can still read all kinds of things about the actual history um, and but without celebrating it, you know, and, and that seems to me to be the point. Um, if you, you know, and I, uh, I'm reluctant to say, you know, should you guys, you know, should the University of Virginia move the statue? It sounds rather reasonable to me. I'd want to make sure that Native students on the campus agreed with that, and that Native people sort of in your local area were behind that effort. Um, but if, if that was agreed to, I think that, uh, you know, seems reasonable to me. We can still, uh, you know, remember George Rogers Clark and think about him and have discussions about him if he's in the museum. Uh, but you know, we don't have to celebrate, um, you know uh the kind of thing that's being celebrated in the 1920s anymore. Uh
0: I couldn't agree more. Very glad uh that you agree. Um the uh the book is called Surviving Genocide. Uh how have these nations uh and to what extent have they and and people continued to survive?
1: Yeah, um uh it, you know, it, it's mixed, and one of the things I tried to do in the book was, um, you know, I have quite a bit of demographic information for many, many different nations, um, and when one looks at that demographic information, one sees general tendencies to population decline uh, throughout you know the 18th and 19th centuries, um, but there's periods of time where some Native nations' populations increases or stabilizes. Uh, some people um, lose a certain percentage of their population through the removal era. Uh, others uh, lose considerably more. Um, but I think that really all Native nations have faced this challenge of survival in various ways, you know, throughout their history and continue to. Uh, you know, it's certainly true that um the population of Native nations generally um has, has increased uh since uh the early twentieth century. Uh the legacies and ongoing um impacts of settler colonialism are very much still apparent, you know. Um but on the other hand, you know, uh, in recent decades, especially, you know, we've seen a, a native resurgence, a native renaissance uh, uh, in various ways of literature, you know, language revitalization, um, all kinds of remarkable things that really completely defy the predictions um, that the early American leaders made that Indians would eventually be gone and disappear and uh you know i i think that it's very fortunate that that didn't happen we're all richer because of that
0: very much so. Just a couple minutes left. I, I wonder if you agree, looking at U.S. foreign policy today, that you also see a legacy, not just all the, all the weapons named for Native Americans, but the skills acquired during the process that you, that you wrote about, the, the, the faked treaties, the feigning of humanitarianism, the making peace in an area, but only so as to drive more people into it. And so, I mean, the, the United States yeah. government acquired imperial skills didn't it?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that, uh, you know, um, there are a great many continuities between the building, um, the techniques used, if you will, to build uh, the United States' continental empire, and then, you know, the techniques that are used and still in play, um, you know, to build and maintain uh, the U.S.'s... um, you know, overseas or world empire. Um, so I right. think, you know, there, there is a, a great, there are a great many continuities. Um, you know, William Apple Williams, the, the great, uh, uh, historian of U.S. diplomacy, um, you know, talked about empire as a way of life and he was really talking about overseas empire, but, but I certainly see, uh, empire as a way of life, you know, from the very beginning uh, and involving the the history uh, that I've written about with uh, the U.S. and indigenous nations.
0: Well, it is a very worthwhile book. Everyone should pick up a copy. It's called Surviving Genocide, Native Nations and the United States from the American Revolution to Bleeding Kansas. Uh, First of two volumes, I understand. Uh, Author is Jeffrey Ostler, who's been our guest. Jeff, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org.
1: Until next time.